0: Well, good morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. This morning we're going to be studying the nativity uh, passage, the birth of Jesus. This is the first time I've ever studied this passage uh, apart from Christmas. is uh, the first time I've I really looked at it to see how it fits in what Luke is developing in his book. You know, always before it was... Uh, A focus on on Christmas and that event and and the fact that this is the uh, most glorious, most awesome event in all of history except for uh, Jesus' death on the cross. And I don't want to overlook how important this event is. This is an awesome, great, glorious occasion. But I also this morning I want to take a look and see what Luke is doing with it as he develops his narrative. You know Luke has been uh interweaving the stories of John and Jesus going back and forth from one to another preparing us building up to this. And everything that Luke is uh, is doing there's, there's a real simplicity Luke doesn't seem to be trying to impress us with the magnitude of this event. Instead, he seems to be trying to impress us with the simplicity of it, the almost normalness of it. The the people involved, these aren't heroic figures larger than life. These are normal people with uh, very typical reactions to what happens. Zacharias is skeptical. Mary is confused. And much as you or I would be, if if we were involved in these events, see, I think that's part of Luke's design to show us that this is the way God works. God works calmly, quietly in the real world of everyday life. See, his his desire, Luke's desires, for us to see that that is the way. God acts. In fact, this morning I think we'll see that God acts in a way that contradicts our expectations of how He would act. He does it differently than we would. Now, Jesus is born to an unknown, poor, young woman in a little cave, away from the limelight, nobody noticing. God makes His announcement to, to a, a bunch of simple shepherds, not to the CBS Evening News. Now, this isn't an OJ trial with all this media attention and coverage. This is far more like a quiet conversation that you might have with a friend sitting around a campfire. Mary uh, caught the significance of what was going on when the angel came to her. Her response. Focused on the fact that God had bypassed the famous, the rich, the powerful, and elevated the common. What she said was, God has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty see, what impressed her was that God chose her, a a nobody. That God was doing things in a way that showed that it was He Himself that was accomplishing these things, not some human influence. Again, God does them differently than we do them. God is not impressed by what impresses us. Mary saw what God was doing. God's character and God's style. And as we go through our passage this morning, I want us to notice God's character, God's style. So, let's take a look at our passage, starting with verse 1 of chapter 2, Luke 2, 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. First uh, two verses, Luke puts this story in the secular historic context, the, the the context that would have been meaningful to the Romans. See, for them, the the most important event of, of that period was the Emperor Augustus's administrative reorganization of the Roman Empire. Augustus was an administrator. The the main thing he brought to Rome as the emperor was his administrative skill. And as an administrator, he wanted accurate information to work with. So every 14, he required that a census be taken. Now, from Augustus's point of view, this had nothing to do with uh, God's plans. This was just his plan to organize his subjects. He didn't realize that even he was God's subject and that even his plans were part of God's design. In Micah 5.2, God had said, "...but you, O Bethlehem, the Phathra, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me him that is to be ruler in Israel." whose going forth has been from everlasting to everlasting. See, God's plan was for His eternal Son to be born in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, which is about 80 miles north of there. So God turned the heart of the emperor to want a census, to require that everyone go to their uh, their city of origin to register. This is what we call the providence of God. See, Mary and and Joseph didn't have to be in control of things. They didn't have to 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 frantically try to line all everything up. All they did was love God and He got them to the right place at the right time. You know, in the same way, we can rely on the providence of God. We don't have to worry about missing God's will, you know, what if I'm not in the right place at the right time? I'll miss it. We usually think this way when we're facing some decision that seems big to us. Um, who to marry, where to live, what to, what to do with our lives. But the fact is, our assignments are far more simple than we realize. Just like Mary and Joseph's assignment was to love each other, to love God, our assignment is to love God and to love the people that He has placed around us. And then He, by His sovereignty, takes care of the circumstances, the when and the where. We can trust Him for the details to get us at the right place at the right time. You know, from Joseph and Mary's perspective, this was an inopportune nuisance. They couldn't have come at a worse time, this, this tax, this census. And Mary was about to deliver. They couldn't have known that this was part of God's plan, that God's plan was behind it. But you see, when we realize this for ourselves, that God's working through the circumstances of life, there is enormous comfort. We can relax and trust Him for the details, make decisions with confidence, laying them before Him, knowing that He will get us where He wants us as we focus on our assignment of loving Him and loving those around us. You know, quite honestly, it was not necessary for Mary to go along on this trip, The men were the only ones who were required to go and to register. But I think as, as Joseph sought to love her, to be sensitive to her needs, God, God got them where he wanted them. You know, maybe they waited to the last minute, hoping that, that, that Mary would deliver before Joseph had to go, but she didn't. Now they're faced with a tough decision, a, 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 a painful dilemma. Should Joseph just go by himself, since Mary was so far along? Or perhaps having already seen how people were treating Mary as an outcast being pregnant before they were married, should they take the risk and take Mary along? You know, I'm sure neither choice felt good to them. But out of Joseph's love for Mary, his desire to be with her and to protect her, they came to the decision for Mary to go along. Again, I don't think they could have known it At the time, but God was in that decision. You see, even the bummers of life, the hard and painful decisions, the the bothersome inconveniences, the attitudes of others are part of God's plan. This obnoxious census, this the the gossip, uh, the harmful attitude of the people around, as hurtful and as bothersome as they were were part of God's plan to accomplish his will if we could only grasp this i think it would transform the way we look at the hassles and problems of life because these things aren't things that that ruin our lives, that, that frustrate God's plan for us. These are part and parcel of God's plan. These aren't things we should rage at and, and avoid. These are things we can confidently walk through, waiting for God to unfold His plan for our lives. Show us what He is doing. See, the unexpected bill, the traffic tie-up, that I was going nuts in yesterday. The the unwanted late night phone call. These are all part of what God is doing in our lives as we put our focus on loving Him in the midst of all of these things. Loving the people around us as we walk through these things. In his latest book, uh, Shining Through, David Roper, gives an illustration of this that gives me goosebumps. He and uh, Carolyn were on a flight back from Europe where they had been ministering at a conference there, and they were tired, wanted to rest. They settled into their seats. Right next to Carolyn was a uh, young man, and on the other side of him was a little boy. And this young man was very upset. He had been separated from his fiance who he was traveling with, and he very much wanted to sit with her. So he's raising a real fuss. Eventually, a man who was sitting next to his fiancée agreed to switch seats. And this other guy was a businessman with a briefcase full of of work. That was okay with Carolyn because she was tired, didn't want to talk much. But the little boy on the other side wasn't about to sit still. He was all excited and full of questions and comments and bouncing up and down, all excited about his trip to America. So eventually this uh, other man, he gave up trying to get any work done, started a conversation with Carolyn. And as the conversation progressed, Carolyn shared the gospel with him. And she finished. She said, you know, that's really interesting. That's what my wife believes. Then he went on and told her that uh, his wife was involved in Bible study fellowship in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, the Ropers are from the Bay Area. So Carolyn said, oh, how did she get involved with that? Turns out, That one of Carolyn's best friends was a friend of this man's wife and had invited her to BSF. And suddenly Carolyn realized who this man was. Her friend had told her about a woman she was discipling whose husband was not a believer and had asked her to pray for this man. Here she had just shared the gospel with a man that she had been praying for for years now, she couldn't have orchestrated this. She couldn't have engineered this, lined it all up. But, but through a, a series of, of hassles and, 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 and circumstances, God got both her and this man in the right place at the right time for her to share the gospel with a man that she had been praying for for years. Now, quite honestly, the only thing unique about this situation is that God peeled back the covering. And gave Carolyn a little glimpse of, of what he was doing. Because God's always doing this kind of thing, whether we know it or not. Now back to our story. As Joseph and Mary were approaching Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, the most dramatic thing that they would have seen on the horizon was Herod's huge Palace on the hill overlooking Bethlehem. This was a, an, an enormous, fortified, magnificent palace on the highest hill, to, just to the southeast of Bethlehem. Much bigger than uh, Simplot's house overlooking the highlands. You see the contrast between this palace on the hill and where Mary and Joseph were headed was striking. And how must Mary and Joseph have felt as they stared at this palace for hours as as they walked. How it it must have just uh, emphasized their inability to show the honor they must have thought appropriate to this little baby that was about to be born. How inadequate it must have made them feel. And then they get to Bethlehem and, and there's no room anywhere. You can think of the quiet desperation Joseph must have felt as he was looking for an appropriate place for Mary to give birth. And how degrading it must have felt to be so unimportant that every innkeeper just sent him away. The only place they could find was a stable, probably a little cave. This is where our Savior was born. We're told that Mary herself wrapped him in some rags, laid him in a feeding trough. There was no one there to help. They were alone. They were unnoticed, unassisted, uncared for. But again, this is where Jesus was born. The God of the universe. A little baby in a cattle stall. What an irony. But how much like God. Just like God. That's the way God works. He works quietly, calmly, away from the hustle and bustle, the, the crowds of the inn, away from the limelight. Doesn't draw a lot of attention. Jesus didn't have a solid gold crib, beautiful silk clothes; just had some old rags and a feeding feeding trough. But when you think of it, the most beautiful, expensive, ornate things that men could produce would have been so inadequate; would have would have seemed like um, I don't know, uh, uh, gaudy. Silly, trivial uh, adornments. You know, like, like a little girl in, in, in dress-ups with too much makeup smeared all over her face. And you know, no external adornment was necessary. So nothing on this earth could have been more beautiful, more appropriate for the God of the universe than that little baby body. Again, that is the way God is. That's the way He looks at things. That's the way He looks at us. Our beauty is not external. It's not on the outside. We're told that the lilies of the field are clothed far better than our richest adornments. We're told over and over in Scripture not to look at external beauty, but to look at the internal beauty of a a calm, a quiet, peaceful spirit. And that's how we should look at things. That's how we should look at beauty in ourselves. That's how we should look at other people. Let me um, read you an illustration from a book called Winning God's Way. Paul Rader was a big strapping football player who lived in the early part of this century. He became an imposing figure on Wall Street where he headed an oil company. Then he got saved and obeyed God's call to preach, finding a post as an assistant pastor in Pittsburgh. One week, a visiting speaker came to his church. Paul took one look at the man, a missionary, and shook his head in disgust. First of all, this man was wearing a flimsy-looking suit of wrinkled brown silk. When he began to talk, it was in a soft, delicate voice. seemed to be frail, not like a real man at all, thought Rader. As he spoke about his work in China, he often dabbed at the corners of his mouth with a handkerchief. Paul approached the man after the meeting and challenged him, "'Sir, why are you so sissified? You call yourself a man of God, but look at the way you're dressed, and look at the way you talk. I don't think you're much of a missionary.' The man patiently explained, "'I'm sorry about this suit, but I've ministered in China for 25 years.' When it was time to leave, all my Western clothes had been worn out for years. The believers in my village pulled their resources to buy the silk to make me this suit. They didn't have a machine, so they stitched it by hand. As for my voice, I did a lot of street preaching and was often beaten up. One time a gang took turns beating me, and a man jumped on my throat. My larynx was permanently damaged, and I no longer have control of my salivary glands." Embarrassed now, Rader murmured an apology and hastened to find a place alone. He went down to the church basement, found a pile of coal and stretched out on it face down. He cried out to God, begging forgiveness for his attitude. He told the Lord that he wanted to serve him like this man. From that day on, Paul Rader was a man with a missionary heart. As pastor and leader of the Christian Missionary Alliance, He influenced many thousands of young men and women to give themselves for missions. You know what fools we become when we look only on the outside, when we see no more clearly than the world around us does. How much we miss of what God is doing because our vision is so distorted. Now let's take a look at the uh, the shepherds. Verse 8. when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. Shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, we may have seen uh, too many Christmas pageants to really uh, get uh, a feeling for how significant it was that this announcement came to shepherds. We have too romanticized a view of shepherds. In those days, shepherds were a despised class of people. They were usually uh, very uh, young men, young boys from poor homes, often orphans who had been sent out into the field as young boys. No schooling. As a result, they were largely uneducated. They were exploited. They were uh, viewed as unreliable, suspicious. In fact, in, in a Jewish court, a shepherd could not testify because his testimony was considered untrustworthy. The religious uh, leaders viewed them as unfit and unclean because out there in the field they couldn't take the Sabbath off. They were taking care of their sheep. They couldn't do all the ritual washings and precautions. They were viewed uh, as outcasts, as, as suspects. I think the, the flavor of how shepherds were viewed in, in those days would be directly analogous to how we might view a, a, an inner-city street kid. And we, we, we view them with a considerable amount of wariness and suspicion. But you see, God has always had a heart for shepherds. He loves them. He likes them. And here, he honors them above all others. Bringing his message to them. Again, the way God is confronts the way we are. We're told in Scripture, he uses the, 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 uh, the poor, the powerless, to confound uh, the, the rich. He he uses the foolish to confound the wise. And to the degree that we are wise and powerful, he confronts our prejudice as well. God sends an angel, just shows up in in the camp, and these boys are terrified. Again, who wouldn't be? The angel tells them, Hey, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all people. That phrase, good news, is where we get our word gospel. Yeah. The, 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 the word gospel comes from the old English "gutspiel," the good news. And this good news was to be for all people, even shepherds. You see, I think deep down we often think that the gospel only really works for people who generally have their act together. Who's, who 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 are are socially competent and, and appropriate. We uh, look around, we see people whose lifestyle just seems too far gone, whose sins are too obvious, and we think it just can't work for them. But that's because we look at the outside. So the reality is, these people are no different than the rest of us. They've just perhaps have not uh, become as good as covering up their lostness. So there's no difference in, in, in their need and longing for God. Their hearts are no, are no further from God. The power of the gospel is every bit as strong in their lives. Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for all. And you know, quite honestly... It's often the people who seem to have their lives together that are more lost because they don't see their need for a physician. Often their response to God is more superficial because they view the gospel as as, as kind of a nice addition to an already together life rather than the radical, total transformation that it is. What is the gospel, the good news? That a Savior has been born to us. Christ, the Lord, the Christ has come—the one who will save us from our sins, from the, uh, the, the the dissatisfaction, from from the blindness to what matters. The one who will bring peace. As soon as that announcement is made, uh, and the angel goes on and tells them how they'll recognize Jesus, the heavens burst open and are filled with angels praising God you know the contrast between the response of heaven and the response of earth is dramatic see on earth it's business as usual on earth nobody must m- nobody much noticed where in heaven where things are seen as they really are their rejoicing was unstoppable i get the feeling that this angel was making the announcement And behind him, crowded around the opening to earth, were all the heavenly hosts, just straining, can't not, you know, unable to wait until the announcement was made. And as soon as it was made, they burst through and exploded into praise and worship of God. God is glorious. He has proved His love by sending His Son. He's He's demonstrated His immense wisdom by this this simple yet unimaginably profound plan. God has brought peace to, to, to men because of His good will toward them. God loves people and He's just proved it. He sent the Prince of Peace who brings peace between man and God, who brings peace to the inner man, who be, brings peace between one man and another. You see, the, uh, the, the rebellion of man against God was broken. The misery, the dissatisfaction in the heart was broken. The the, the, the selfishness and competitiveness between men was broken all because a little baby was born. See, the angels see the implication and are overwhelmed. Mankind with our blind eyes who see With those, only with those eyes, was underwhelmed. But again, that's the way it is on this earth. That which is truly important is overlooked for that which makes noise and and commotion. Now, we're told that when a single sinner repents, heaven explodes with the rejoicing of angels. Doesn't even make the newspaper. Nobody notices. But again, as we look at this story, we begin to see reality. We, with squinting eyes, begin to form a picture of what is real and what's truly important. Let's finish our story. Shepherds, simple, uneducated folk that they are, they don't question the story the, what they've been told by the angels, they just run to Bethlehem as fast as they can. And then they come there, they find Jesus, just like they were told. And when they after they see Him, they are no longer the quiet, unnoticed outcasts of society. They are out telling everyone they can find what they've seen and what they've heard. These guys become the first evangelists not because they've just taken an evangelism course and gotten all pumped up about their responsibilities to witness, but because they have seen reality and they can't contain the joy of it. Henry Ward Beecher said, that's what we become, joy bearers. We just can't keep the joy to ourselves. We're told that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. You know, what an encouragement this must have been to her. She and Joseph sitting in that cave wondering what was going on and suddenly this gang of young boys comes rushing in full of excitement and stories about angels and the glory of God. What a gift to her their excitement must have been. And Mary has the right response. She doesn't... uh, frantically jump up and say, okay, okay, now we've got to get this all organized. She doesn't run out in the street and demand everyone acknowledge this new baby of hers as Lord. She doesn't even try to, to, to come up with an explanation for it all in her own mind. She just calmly, quietly stores it in her heart. Waiting. Watching what God's doing. Trusting Him and His plan. And how much we would gain from being like her. Quietly thinking about what God is doing. Rather than always running around and doing ourselves. So here we have it. The Savior has come. The God of the universe has come in the flesh. The longing of the ages has come. But he's come as a little little baby. Tiny, defenseless, vulnerable, needy. Who could have imagined it? But again, how like God. This little baby would change the world. All who received him found peace. All who received him received the right to become children of God. Now, the glory of this event is unimaginable. It is enormous, overwhelming. But in the simplicity of this event, we see more about God than in any other event in history save the cross. See, in the way God did what He did, we learn so much about His character And his style, the way he does things. Looking at this event, we see reality. This world we live in is in darkness. People don't see reality. They can't see reality. It's only as one comes to to Jesus Christ in faith that, that, that a person's eyes can be opened. Apart from that, none of us can see things as they are. Even as Christians, if we're not looking at Him, trusting Him, we will stumble through the darkness, looking at people only on the outside, valuing things that are are worthless and empty, shallow and meaningless, throwing our lives away, pursuing things that aren't real, that can't satisfy ignoring and despising the things that really matter. Let me challenge you. Think about your life. Look at your life. What is important to you? Is it closing that big deal at work, getting that that promotion with, uh, with more pay, more prestige? Is it that new car, the new house, the new look new clothes new new uh, hairstyle and, and what impresses you is it someone's success th- their wealth would you have gone to the castle up on the hill or to the cave on the wrong side of town would you have noticed when jesus came have you noticed Is is that the most important thing in your life, that He has come and that He loves you? How do you look on your priorities? Do you see the significance of loving God and and, and loving the people around you? Or is that just a necessary distraction as you get on with with the, the real important things in your life? You see, the reality is that... Sitting down and listening to your little daughter or your son may be the most important thing you do all year. The patience you show with that uncomfortable person that you ran into may have more lasting effect than anything else you do this week. See, that is the way reality is. That's the way God is. We rarely see what God is up to, but He is always up to something wonderful. And let me use this to to excite or ignite our vision for ministry. You know, here you are sitting in in little Boise, Idaho, maybe uh, teaching a first grade Sunday school class, maybe sitting across a cup of coffee with a neighbor, Maybe fixing a single mom's car. It seems so small, so insignificant. But look at that small baby lying in a manger. Look at how insignificant Mary and Joseph felt in that cave in the little tiny town nowhere. See, God uses the small, the insignificant to do His work, to change the world. And God will use you. He'll do great things through you if you let Him. And God will use this church to do earth-shaking things. It would boggle your mind if you only knew. May God open our eyes to reality. May He show His power through us as we trust Him and as we put our focus on loving Him and loving those He has placed around us. May we, each one, embrace that baby born in Bethlehem and let Him transform our minds, our way of thinking. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, do confess our blindness, what fools we do become, because we see only with our eyes. Lord, we want to begin to see through your word, through your promises, to recognize that every day is a divine appointment, that you do have plans that we don't have a clue of. That the things that happen in our lives that just seem like nuisances, that didn't have to happen, that, that, that just frustrate us, are not a frustration of your plan. They are part of your plan. Lord, give us the wisdom to keep our uh, assignment clear. To keep our focus on loving you and loving the people around us in the midst of whatever you're taking us through. And then, Lord, we want you to to do great things through us. We want you to change this world through our relationships, through the investment you make through us into other lives, through the demonstration of who you are. Lord, we have caught a glimpse this morning of who you are and how you work. We don't want to despise that. We don't want to look for the big, the big bang, the, the glitz and the glamour. We want to faithfully, quietly, thinking about you and what you're doing, love you and love the people around us. Lord, use each person in this congregation for your glory, we pray. Amen.